If you choose to research the origins of a topic being discussed frequently in the United States in recent months called critical race theory, you will find the name Derek Bell. Law professor Bell, who died in 2011, was one of the principal originators of this much-discussed subject. In November of 1992, Derek Bell appeared on Book Notes to discuss his book, quote, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, The Permanence of Racism, unquote. Here is an excerpt from that interview. I think black people are the faces at the bottom of the societal well that uh, whites, most of whites in America who are only one level above, also denied opportunity, also oppressed in a certain way, uh, are fascinated in looking down on us rather than looking back at the top to see where the folk at the top are manipulating both groups. Only if they, in effect, let down their ropes, um, join with us, can both groups ever climb up and challenge and confront those at the top who make all the money, who have all the opportunity. And some do. But most seem fascinated simply making sure that we stay below them. And it's a uh, uh, kind of a metaphor that it seems reflects much of what has happened in the history of race in our society. And it's the challenge uh, that faces uh, our society. And it is the reason, uh, because thus far that challenge has never been effective, that I conclude that racism is a permanent part of the American scene. Based on your experience of being interviewed a lot for this book, what would, and this may sound like a strange question to you, but what, what kind of question as a white male am I more likely to ask you in the next hour than if I were a black male? What my publisher said, Martin Kessler, who has really supported me with this book and the earlier, ver- the earlier uh, book that's like this one, um, Derek, he said, your book is unremittingly despairing. And I get that question again and again. Uh, very few blacks would ask that, though some, some do, particularly professional civil rights people. And uh, they mean that, gee, racism is permanent. Where does that leave us? But most blacks say, yes, it is. Now let's deal with that. Thank you for saying it, you see. Because if you really are a part of this thing, if you really sense where you are, regardless of how much money you may make and what have you, that, that you are part of a group that's at the bottom of the societal well, then any truth, any insight about your status is not despairing. Because the truth is not despairing when you see it as the truth. In fact, it's, it's almost enlightening because you say, ah, that's what it is. It's not this thing over here. It's not this thing over here. And so that the... Uh, I, I was on a very controversial uh, talk show host, uh, and he kept pressing me and pressing me, why are you so despairing? Look what this is going to do. And he opened the line for phone calls, and a couple of obviously black people called in and hailed what I was saying in the book and took uh, the uh, white host to task uh, for challenging me. Why don't you listen to him, they said, you see. So that... The book is, the other question is, who did you write this for? And uh, the answer is that I wrote it for both blacks and whites. Uh, not simply lawyers although, and law students, although many of those stories initi- were initiated as challenges in the classroom. Uh, but for blacks, 
it was to provide this enlightenment, uh, to give a different sense of, of where they are, of what is the cause of the uh, sense of subordination that they feel and they experience. And it is also to say to whites that racism is, in its permanence is not a condemnation of you, but rather a, a challenge to you to recognize that you too are victimized by this, unless you're at the very top of this system. And even then, uh, the crime that affects our communities that is mostly black crime is not limited to black people, uh, you see. And so that there is something there for all of us. But it is not what Gunnar Murdahl felt. It is not what most of us felt. When I went to law school, uh, the sense was Brown was decided two years before I graduated. And the world generally felt, knowledgeable people, experienced people, that, well, with Brown decided, with uh, uh, discrimination based in law being condemned by the Supreme Court, it was all over. All we needed was enforcement, uh, sort of a rear guard action to take care of the folk who uh, uh, were persistent and hardliners. Uh, but uh, I was told that I, I was born 15 years too late to be a civil rights lawyer, you see. And, well, now we, we see that that was wrong, that that was far, far too optimistic. And the question I've been asking, and I have the luxury as a law teacher to be able to step back, uh, that I didn't have as a litigator, that I didn't have as an administrator, to step back and look, what keeps these patterns going again and again in different forms, but continuing over 200 years? And it seemed to me that the conclusions that I found from that question uh, led to uh, uh, the, the title of that book, that racism is a permanent part of the American scene. Where's uh, hometown? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's, it's interesting. When I grew up in the 30s and the 40s, segregation was a way of life in the South by hard, rigid law. In the North and places like Pittsburgh by a general understanding, black people did not go there. You didn't seek jobs there or at a level above, uh, above the bottom. Uh, I had delivered newspapers throughout my junior and senior high school uh, years. And in the black community, and it was in eight, ten blocks, every, every socioeconomic level, uh, from the one black judge in the city to one of the few black lawyers, all the way down to people on welfare, to the unemployed, to maids and janitors, and and what have you. And the two lawyers were models uh, for me. And the people who had halfway decent jobs were stabilizers in that community. They, they, their houses were a little uh, uh, nicer. They were made of brick instead of frame. Uh, but they all lived in the same community. And uh, they ins insisted that there be decent police protection, that the streets be clean, that the broken lights be repaired, and what have you, as middle class people do, regardless of race, color, and creed. Today, under the, the, the new scheme that I, as a civil rights lawyer, helped bring into being, we have equal opportunity. One of the things that has meant is that those folk who were able, the lawyers who were models for me, no longer live, for the most part, in the inner city. They have moved out to the suburbs, which is their right. But they are not available to our inner city youth, whose models too often are the drug dealers and, and the pimps and the, uh, and the other people who, whose modeling is, is something less praiseworthy than any of us would hope. When in your life do you remember the first racial slight or racism mm -hmm. example? 
you know, it was not during my childhood. I, I knew there were things. You, you could tell race. My parents used to say, um, you have to work twice as hard as a black person to get half as much. My mother would say that uh, at all times. But there was kind of a respect. My father would say, you know, white people are, are scheming and planning while we're sleeping and eat, eating. And you, so you, that was a message. My mother would say, uh, when I go downtown and I see a lot of white women around a particular counter, I dive right in there because they must know something right. You get all of these kind of very interesting uh, signals. I mean, we used to listen to Amos and Andy and laugh along. I mean, you knew it was stereotype and it was demeaning, but heck, those were the only black <laughs> characters on, on, on radio. And, and the Amos time. and Andy radio were whites and the that's Amos right. and Andy television were black. That's right, that's right. Uh, but you kind of accepted whatever. Wings Over Jordan was a radio program that came on every morning. It was a black choir singing spirituals, and that was de rigueur. I remember being able to um, walk up the street on Sunday morning, some, um, a nice day, windows open long before air conditioning, particularly in the black community, and you'd never miss a beat because all the radio stations uh, were tuned to Wings Over Jordan. And some of your listeners, uh, watchers, will viewers will probably remember uh, that. that what, ab what about uh, in just normal day-to-day -day life? Where do you see racism? What kind of thing? What, what well, you your question was, and I didn't really answer it. Is that uh, in my early, I didn't see it directly. We didn't try to go to restaurants. My mother talked about work, working as a dishwasher in a downtown restaurant, where blacks didn't didn't go to eat. My parents didn't go out to a restaurant, I don't think, ever, when uh, there was one little black restaurant in the, in, in, in the black community. But for the most part, I don't think we ever went there. Uh, when I grew up and went to law school, I remember my first job was in here in Washington. And I, my parents came down to visit, and I took them out to a restaurant. And I remember them being visibly ill at ease, my father in, in particular. Later, it, it eased up, but this was a new experience for them. You see, but uh, the direct racial insults I was kind of insulated from in the growing up in the black community, in the schools. I'm sure that there was discrimination, but I was a star student and I was treated very uh, treated very well. Now, when was the first time that you, you know, the, you saw racism out of school yeah. that you that, that made you uncomfortable? I guess when I I went to college, I went to Duquesne. I was in ROTC. It was during the Korean War, and my and of course, as soon as I finished, I was got my orders to to take uh, active duty status, and I was uh, going to report to a base in South Carolina uh, for orientation and what have you. And my father was visibly disturbed, and he had just gotten a, a new car, Plymouth, and he said, "You take this car, and you can make the payments and what have you," which is what I did. And so you, you don't have to ride these segregated trains down there. Well, I, I uh, visibly upset him because I asked one of my white classmates at the, from the college, who was also ordered to report to uh, South Carolina, to drive along with me. Well, and that's what we did. And I remember I knew that we couldn't stay. I couldn't stay at the white places, but I got the name of a, a black rooming house in Virginia, and we were going down below Washington, and we were going to stop there for the night. I think it was in Richmond. And when the two of us walked up to the woman's door, she was very unhappy. He, she said, cannot stay here. 
um, and uh, I drove him to a white hotel, and uh, then I came back, and she let me stay, but she lectured me. I was going to get her in trouble, and such, such and such and such. And the, even that, I, I came to know that this was a different world. When I got to South Carolina and then later was stationed in Louisiana at an air base there, and I was living in town because they said there was no room for me in bachelor officer's quarters. There was plenty of room. They just didn't want me to stay there. Uh, I came to realize that, wow, my life was always at risk, that any white person could knock me down and what have you. That didn't happen. But that was the first time I realized that it could happen, and I really had no recourse. Well, I tell you, I wore my uniform a great deal, uh, and uh, I felt comfortable and got better treatment. But there was still discrimination. If I wanted to go to the movies, I had to sit upstairs. Uh, I decided I was Presbyterian at that time, and uh, there was no black Presbyterian church. So I went to the local white Presbyterian church one morning and uh, presented myself in the door with my uniform, my bar shining, and the uh, uh, usher came very nervous. Uh, good morning, Lieutenant. I said, good morning. Uh, I would like to attend service. Oh, very good. Uh, oh, wait a minute, he said. And he went back and he conferred with all of them and came back and said, uh, we really welcome you. Would you mind sitting upstairs? I said, does the service come up there? And he said, oh, yes, sir. Yes, it does. So I went up there. And obviously, this is an old stage church and all the people had their own pews. But that morning, I had plenty of room. But an old woman came tottering up to me afterwards, put out her hand and said, welcome, I'm glad you're here. And I went back. And each Sunday, people kind of returned to the seats that they had been sitting in for, uh, for, for years. And uh, I felt fairly comfortable. And finally asked the minister about singing in the choir. Well, this was visibly up upsetting to him. And he said he would have to think about it and what have you. Well, I don't know whether he called the base commander or what have you, but I'd also been complaining to the base commander about the segregation of the buses. The bus could be integrated as it went around the bus, but when it got to the gate, the bus driver pulled over and blacks, workers, and service people would have to move to the back. Uh, and I thought that was crazy. And uh, a few things like that, and next thing you knew, I was ordered to go to Korea. Uh, so, but that, that period uh, was the first time I really experienced uh, what many blacks know about very, very well. On a day-to-day, -day, and I don't, I'm jumping way ahead, but on a day-to-day -day basis, where do you see racism in your life today here? What are the little things that you, yeah. vibes that you get? I went to lunch yesterday at Union Station, which has been totally revamped and very popular and a lot of sort of al fresco restaurants around, and we went and stopped for lunch. And uh, very good service. But as I looked about, I saw that all the waiters were white and all the busboys were Asian. Here in a community with, what, population 70, 80 percent black, not a black waiter in sight. As a matter of fact, I don't think I've seen a black waiter in a restaurant since I've been here the last two or three days, and uh, uh, I've eaten in a number of restaurants. When I came here in 1957, right out of law school, there were a number of downtown restaurants that only had black waiters, you see. The restaurants had only recently been desegregated. Uh, and it shows the difference in, pa in the patterns. So that while we now have a black mayor, um, black city council people, which would, of course, been ridiculous even to contemplate back in the, in, in the late 50s, uh, that the patterns 
are such that the, uh, uh, the mainstream of blacks are more limited in job opportunities perhaps than was the case then. And in patterns that are existing laws, and we have more civil rights laws on the books than we've ever had. But those laws are aimed at a, a kind of discrimination, a kind of blatant, overt, uh, no Negroes hired kind of thing that we simply don't have anymore. Uh, what we're dealing with today is a, is a kind of uh, um, racial preference, uh, racial priority, a racial nepotism in which there's, this, for one reason or another, a preference for one. That doesn't mean that I'll, I'll never find a black waiter at a, a restaurant, but it means that I won't find very many. Not because the owners and managers hate black people, because they'll serve me every time, you see, in uh, other blacks who are well-dressed and look like they're able to pay the bill. Uh, but there are a number of reasons why they don't want blacks as waiters, or they don't want blacks at this level, or they don't want blacks at the, or maybe only one. So that while prior to Brown, prior to the ending of official discrimination, uh, racism was blatant and open and, and, and stark, um, uh, you, you knew why you were not being hired or admitted or rented to and what have you. Uh, you knew who the enemy was. It was not you. But today, the patterns are, are more confused. When you're turned down, uh, you're not sure whether it was the old discrimination at work or whether there's some inadequacy. Because the society is filled uh, with explanations and rationales why it's your fault. And people kind of grasp onto that. A caller in one of the radio talk shows I was on the other day called and said that he, he appreciated discrimination, but now, obviously, white collar. He was concerned because someone had told him that back in Africa, when the slave trade was going on, that some Africans participated and assisted the uh, slave traders in procuring, uh, capturing Africans and selling them off into slavery. And I said, that's right. That did happen. Why is that? Uh, so what? Well, he said, if that's the case, I don't see why white people have to feel guilty about everything that happened, because blacks participated in it, you see. Well, that seems crazy, but it, it, it indicates the extent to which there is sort of a search for justifications, uh, for rationalizations, for anything that get folk off the hook, that make it unnecessary that for them to deal with this, to accept responsibility, to try to struggle with it. Not everyone, but the patterns are there. Uh, that the, and, and, and it, it, it's so interesting, that's why a Clarence Thomas gets promoted to the Supreme Court. Any black who is willing to stand in a public place and say that welfare is uh, the fault of lazy blacks, including his own sister, uh, any black who is willing to say that affirmative action is uh, all bad, uh, not that it simply has some aspects that are, that are not positive, any black who is willing to uh, say what many whites think with regard to why blacks aren't getting ahead immediately shoots forward because it, that person is a comfort uh, to the society. The, the other part of that, though, and why this is such a crazy thing, is that I am, with all my uh, supposed militants, as much a comfort for the society. Because uh, whites look at me and say, boy, you're talking bad about racism, okay, okay. But you're black, you must have faced racism, Let, and yet you made it, 
why can't the other blacks be like you? Do you think about or do you see discrimination or racism every day of your life? No, no. Um, but I'm, I've been insulated. I might be stopped by the police, but I know that, because I'm black, but I know that when they, before I even reach in my pocket carefully, uh, that the, 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 my standard English skills automatically tell them that, they, hey, don't, don't mess with him, you see. Uh, I've been stopped in the South uh, by policemen who are ready to give me the treatment, at least verbally. And once I, I, I always wore my uniform when I was in the service, but even since, once I pull out my wallet and there's the Harvard uh, officer's card there and what have you, uh, they see that this is, and I get almost deferential uh, treatment. So that education and status, uh, economics uh, stuff, uh, poor whites always respect upper class people. You see, they may not like them, uh, but they, whether they're black or white, they get a, a measure of respect. And then a quick story. When I was in Louisiana, I wasn't there to challenge you, but it would seem that from what I've been telling you. I decided once, beautiful fall Saturday afternoon, that I'd love to go to a football game. And in this little town, there was a small college, and they were having a big game. So going to a football game now, I put on my uniform, shined up my bars, went, the crowd was going in, I parked my car. And I went over to a policeman, big, huge guy. And I said, officer, uh, are blacks being permitted to go to this game? He said, Lieutenant, I don't know, but let me find out. And this big, huge hawking guy, I could see him above the crowd swirling toward the, uh, toward the stadium as he went first to this window and then somebody sent him around there, kind of almost at a jog. And he finally came back to me, he was kind of walking slow. And he looked embarrassed. He said, sorry, Lieutenant, they're not letting you in. They're not letting you in. I thanked him, went back to my car, and, and went home. But it, it, see, that's, that's the kind of thing I, I get. I don't get the direct uh, beating on the heads that so many of my less, uh, less successful brethren uh, have, to, uh, have to deal with that it's not that we don't face discrimination, but it's a much more of a mass thing. I can go to a dinner party with upper-class professional blacks, and you would think that we were all in prison. Uh, there is rage going around the dinner table with the beautiful linen and the handsome uh, uh, um, uh, cutlery and, and, and silver and, and what have you, as they talk about one experience uh, after another that they, that they have gone through in their upper class, uh, in their upper class status, you see. You write on page 12 of your book, you say, black people will never gain full equality in this country. Mm -hmm. Even those Herculean efforts uh, we hail as successful will produce no more than temporary peaks of progress, short-lived victories that uh, slide into irrelevance as racial patterns adapt in ways that maintain white dominance. This is a hard-to-accept fact that all history verifies. We must acknowledge it, not as a sign of submission, but as an act of ultimate defiance. Yes, yes. That, if I had to put down my whole 35 years of working in this, um, it, it's reflected. In fact, I think I put that paragraph in, in italics. You did. Because if you read nothing else, uh, I think that reflects my experience. Now, am I right? I'm not sure. Uh, but that is my experience. I, you know, I have a lot of respect 
for the Old uh, Testament prophets. Um, my earlier book was And We Are Not Saved, uh, which is Jeremiah. The summer is ended, the harvest is over, and we are not saved. Uh, because they got abused. Uh, and I expect abuse. But the, uh, they, 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 they operated under divine credentials. I don't have that. I have only my experience and the effort as hard as I can to tell it as I, as I see it. And as I see it, the patterns of racial subordination have certainly changed from slavery to segregation to equal opportunity. But the results of those changes have always maintained blacks in a subordinate position. It's like it's, we're operating in a gyroscope. And you tilt it one way and knock it the other way, but it then it retains its equilibrium, you see. And that's what you see uh, throughout, throughout history. I haven't got much time left. Have you ever uh, decided in your own mind why whites, those that are, are racist? What is at the bottom of it? I think uh, this is a country built on property. And most whites don't have any property. And what they have come to accept, and this began... Uh, with the initiation of slavery in the 1660s. What the society provided them was a quasi-property right in their whiteness. That because of their whiteness, those on top said, we identify with you, you should identify with us. We must stand together against these blacks that we're putting into permanent servitude. And we're going to lower the poll taxes so that some of you can vote. And we're going to provide little plots of land that we can lease to you and what have you. But we are one. Well, hell, they weren't <laughs> We are one. Those who are, uh, were able to uh, afford slaves always had a tremendous advantage. Those who didn't were always going to be workers, yeomen, uh, you see. And yet they accepted that deal. And in, in, in things like that, more sophisticated, more subtle, have gone on ever since. And as long as whites are willing to accept as part of their entitlement, a preference based on skin color and a desire to make sure that blacks, for the most part, stay on the bottom, it's going to be very difficult ever to challenge a system uh, that increasingly uh, puts some people way at the top of the economic scale and most of the rest of us at the bottom. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.